0: And on the first episode of our new season, I'm sitting down with one of my favorite artists, Steve Taylor.
1: My barber in Boulder, was always asking me about what was going on and, you know, was interested in what I was doing. And I told him I'd been recording some songs. I said, "What? sounds interesting. I got a friend who, you know, just moved out here from L.A. who was a big deal in the music business. Can I play him a tape? And yeah. So I gave him the tape. He gave it to his friend. His friend was like, oh, this is really good. And I think he'd been ahead of like Warner Brothers Publishing or something. Mm-hmm. So he set up these meetings for me to go out to L.A. and meet with like Ariston, Warner Brothers, and different labels like that. Mm-hmm. So I took the tape out, had the meetings, and the reaction was almost, and I think all three meetings was almost always the same. It's like this music is interesting, you know, because like a, kind of a punk new wave hybrid that mm-hmm. it's, it sounded good, sounded fresh, but they said with well, these lyrics, they're like, kind of Christian but kind of satirical like we like your music but I think your lyrics would offend our audience. So I thought well if it's the Christian content then I just need to go talk to some Christian labels and I played it for Word and Sparrow and another one and their reaction was uh, we don't like your music and your <laughs> lyrics would offend our listeners <laughs> and so that kind of defined my career for the next few decades
2: There's a power! Sitting on a hollow limb He seems to have the whole morning out Right in front of him And everything he sings From the branch that he's sitting on It seems to hustle leaves And the colors all around Now first he sings And then he goes And what it means It's hard to know
0: Hey, this is Mike Cosper, and you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. And to kick off this new season, we've got a two-part episode featuring musician, producer, and filmmaker Steve Taylor. He's worked with people like The Newsboys, Chevelle, and Sixpence None the Richer, and he directed Blue Light Jazz. He's also made a whole bunch of great records. It's a great conversation, so stay with us.
1: In uh, college, I actually went to Biola uh, University for my freshman year and then um, promptly lost a really great scholarship. Uh, You know, I wasn't a bad student. I was was actually a good student, but I just wasn't quite good enough to keep that really good scholarship. So I came back to Denver and went to the University of Colorado Boulder, which was like, you couldn't have picked two more opposite places. I wanted to study music, but I was also really interested in film. And so I got my degree in music, but I took what was the equivalent of like a, a film minor. It was a pretty new department at the time, and they were not into like narrative. Like it was all avant-garde. There was a guy named Stan Brackage who was kind of the guru of the department. He was, like, probably America's foremost avant-garde filmmaker at the time. And uh, the South Park creators uh, went there, like, four or five years later. I don't think they finished, I get it dropped out after a year or two, but they named Stan after Stan Breckage. So
0: <laughs> That's great.
1: Yeah. So that got me interested in music and film. And when I got out, I thought uh, I was interested in both. Like, I, I didn't want to have to pick, but, you know, I figured it would probably be better to be in a... Band in my 20s and a filmmaker in my 50s in the reverse. Yeah. So so I I got into music, but then just kept one foot in film, initially from doing music videos for myself, and then I'd get hired to do them for other people, Mm -hmm. and then uh, started getting into longer form pieces. And then eventually I thought, well, um, hopefully one of these days I'll I'll get into yeah. Feature films.
0: Were you always a musician, like growing up as a kid? Well, I sang. My dad was a pastor. What kind of what like kind of American church? Baptist.
1: You know, there was always music going on in church. my dad was actually a really fine singer and still is. He just uh, turned 90 and uh, there was a pianist in the restaurant and asked for requests, and I, I remembered he used to sing September song in the car. He, he would always sing gospel songs and, you know, sacred songs in church, but in the car he would sing like standards. And so I called out this uh, old Kurt Weill song, September song, and man, my dad just sang it perfectly, right, immediately, right? Came right there. So there was always music around, and I was good at music theory, but I could not play anything. Like, I I started off playing bass, and I was not a good bass player. In fact, I I was in a band at Biola that ended up breaking up because I was such a bad bass player. They were so kind, they didn't want to fire me, so they just broke the band up instead of firing me. That's great. I had to pass piano proficiency in college to get my degree, and I just barely passed it. So I can write charts out, I can, you know, arrange things but I just can't play anything myself.
0: I was told to ask you something about lounge singing school. Is this, oh, totally. Is this a thing? So, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me that story. Yeah,
1: so uh, um, in 1979, I was still in college, like into my, uh, I think I was just finishing my second year of college. And on The Tonight Show at the time with uh, Johnny Carson, they would have you know, guest hosts. And uh, Johnny brought out this guest named John Davidson, who was, uh, at the time, a, a quite a famous uh, mm-hmm. nightclub singer. Had a big Las Vegas act, and he'd been in some Disney movies mm-hmm. and uh, ended up hosting a show called That's Incredible. He was going to have this, like, a school in the summer for, like, lounge singers. I didn't call it that. Just for singers, right? Yeah. Call it John Davidson singer's, uh, singer's, camp, singer's summer camp. And it sounded really interesting. And then he, he, he mentioned it on the air. He had, like, 20,000 entries. Mm-hmm. And I... Put my hat in the ring and was one of like a hundred people picked wow. to to do it, so I went for the summers for a month. It was on Catalina Island. It was teaching you how to be like a cabaret performer, wow. and at the time it was like you know, it was a big deal. Like the Today Show came out and covered it and I got all this media coverage and Time and Newsweek. And um on the weekends we would go into the Avalon in the town of Cat on Catalina Island and do performances. And so we'd have like arrangers there to help us arrange. We learn how to tap dance. We learned how to tell like banter between songs. And uh, and then I got back, you know, went back to school the next year and that's when I discovered like the clash. And punk rock. So I'm sure it helped on some level but it wasn't necessarily good training for
0: it definitely was punk a different rock. direction than where <laughs> yes. you where you ended up. That's right. So you you get out of college like when did you start pursuing a career in music right away or I was saving money. I was a, I was a church custodian
1: and also a youth pastor at the same time I was going to college and I would kind of stash money away, and then hire some friends. And we ran out like a recording studio, and I started doing
0: demos mm. of songs that ended up becoming the first album. How did you eventually get that stuff out there, past the opposition or past yeah. the gatekeepers?
1: Well, so the, the label, uh, Sparrow, that, it was an A&R person there that had turned me down. But then I got this slot to do a couple of songs. It was like the first time I'd, I'd performed live and um, What year is this? This was in 1982, I think. Okay. Yeah. So a bunch of friends came up, kind of loaded the audience, and other <laughs> friends told them other friends. So when I went on stage, like, a lot of people were really into it. I don't know if they actually were into it, but they knew they were supposed to be into it. The head of the record label at the time, Billy Ray Hearn, I'm not sure that he totally got it, but he saw... That the crowd was getting it, and it was honestly, he just met me on the side of the stage when I walked out stage, said I want to do a record deal. Yeah. It ended up being a great label to be at. They were really supportive, and they were always, you know, up for trying anything. And they really took a very kind of hands-off approach. You know, they never said do this song or don't do that song. It really? kind of spoiled me. Yeah, it was a great experience. You know, they let me mm-hmm. do music videos, so that they didn't have a lot of money, but they gave me money to do my first music video and. Uh, Yeah, I look back on the Sparrow experience fondly.
0: Yeah, what years did did that cover? It was like the first
1: album came out in 1983. I think then the next album came out a year
0: later and a year later after that. Okay. Yeah. Taylor's music has an edge to it. He was willing to take on controversial topics that challenged the Christian community from within. He took a swing at Jimmy Swaggart and the song Guilty by Association. He was critical of Bob Jones University's policies about interracial dating in the song We Don't Need No Color Code. In 1987, he caused quite a stir with a song called I Blew Up The Clinic Real Good. It tells the story about an ice cream man who blows up an abortion clinic because the clinic is going to mean fewer children and thus hurt his business. The point of the song is the absurdity of anyone who says they're pro-life and endorses killing abortion doctors. But that point was often lost, and as a result, the record got pulled from many Christian bookstores. Interestingly, Steve, and I think this says something about who he is, is said to have called a lot of those stores personally to try to explain the meaning of the song. the support from the label what were the reactions from contemporary christian culture yeah i mean it was divisive like a lot of people really liked it and a lot of people thought this was like really wrong like people didn't get the joke
1: or i think they got the joke they just didn't think the joke was funny (laughs) (laughs) or they just they thought it was inappropriate like one thing that i got a lot is you shouldn't be airing our dirty laundry interesting in front of you know for the world to hear. If only the world would have heard it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but I mean, you know, of course my response was, well, were you kidding? Like you think they don't know it? They just think we don't know it, yeah. right? Yeah. So we caught on uh, quicker in, a, in a, a somewhat bigger way in England when I went over there for the first time. And I don't, maybe they were just more ready for it or something, but I mean, you know, the, the the response in the U.S. was generally good as well, so I can't complain.
0: Yeah, what are your favorite memories, moments, and along those experiences? Is there anything you look back on with particular fondness or records that stand out to you? It's like, man, these, this was a moment.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it would be so much easier to tell me, have me tell you the the songs I wish I wouldn't have recorded. <laughs> but um, you know, there were there were good ones. One of the tough things is when you're doing something that's of of a moment. It sounds like it was recorded in 1984. It, it sounds sure. good, you know, but yeah. it just it was very much defined by that era. So, And then some of the stuff was pretty topical. So there was a song I did that got me probably more bad reaction than any song I'd done, which was, was to do with Bill Gothard and the oh, basic okay. youth
0: conflicts at the time. You remember all that? Just to provide some context, Bill Gothard ran a ministry that was called Basic Youth Conflicts and later Basic Life Principles. These involved homeschool curriculum, conferences, seminars, all of them about principles for parents and families. They were teachings about parental authority. Gothard really liked the idea of authority, especially for fathers over daughters. And his teaching ranged from ideas about dressing conservatively to discouraging rock music to warnings about Cabbage Patch dolls. Seriously, you can look that up. Gothard eventually was disgraced for charges of sexual harassment and child molestation, but that was almost two decades after Steve wrote the song he's talking about. And if you want to hear a little more about some of this, you can go listen to my interview with Alyssa Wilkinson from season one. She also had some experience with the Gothard movement.
1: So I did a song about that in the third album. Which one's that? It's called On the Fritz. The song is called I Manipulate, and it was not satirical. I had no idea that it was just Gothard. And the original version was way, actually way... Way tougher than the final version is. I had a couple of people that I would run songs by that I, you know, respected. And that was one where they said, You cannot do this. Like, you've crossed the line here. (laughs) So I went back and pulled it back down 10%. There's another song on the same album called uh, It's a Personal Thing that I look back with fondness, especially, uh, you know, every time election season rolls around. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, a lot of the songs I'm really happy with, and then there's others that's just, uh, I don't know what I was thinking, or, you know, right. they seemed like a good idea at the time. And
0: yeah. Well, it's the nature of making art, right? Like, it, 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 it's, it comes from a moment, and then it's there. It's always there. You can't. Right. You're not going to be able to go get them back out. No, and in the the internet age, like, you never live it down. Now, like, all those,
1: you know, music videos are out there for everybody (laughs) to see, and
0: you you just can't escape it. A good friend of mine is... Ronnie Martin from the band The Joy Electric. I don't know if you oh, remember that. Oh, yeah, sure. Them. Oh, of course. They had a video for the song Monosynth where he's like all painted silver and, you know, it's real like super intense. Right. And Ronnie pastors a church now in Ohio and and is part of this church planting network. And no, nobody really knows that part of Ronnie's life. Like they don't know that story. And so we were we were hosting a conference and Ronnie was like our MC for some of this stuff. And I just pulled that video up on YouTube as he was getting ready to take the stage and turned it on. And it took a few minutes for people to realize that that was Ronnie because oh, right. it, it's painted silver and all this kind of stuff. And he was just dying. And he said afterwards, you know, he was talking about the video because it's, it's just so over the top. And he said, you know, when we made that, it was like 1996— And it was on Tooth & Nail Records, which was this tiny independent label at the time. And you you make these things, and they're being copied onto VHS tapes and sent off to like 300 fans. And you think, that's all. This is just a joke. It's funny. You know, you're never going to see it again. And now the internet age, like that thing follows him everywhere he goes. Yeah, I know. So when I picked up with your music was when you put out Squint. I guess in between that and some of the earlier stuff was Chigal Guevara. That was more of a mainstream record. So you've sort of stood on both sides of the fence in terms of contemporary Christian music and mainstream music. Like, how, how do you navigate that tension? What do you think about that? I know you've some of the artists that you've, I mean, you worked with Sixpence when they broke over the other side too. So what do you think about that dichotomy? Well, that experience of forming
1: a band with the idea of let's do this and sign to a mainstream label was uh, formative in many ways. It's one of the things. It's, it's what got me out to Nashville because I was living in LA at, at the time, and all the band members were Christians, but we just wanted to be successful rock band. Right? Yeah. It was it was it was tricky. You know, we. Started making demos, and we started playing around and and got a following. And then it came time when we were ready to be seen, kind of. And we got a really good response really quickly from multiple labels and ended up signing with a label called MCA Records, which was a you know big yeah. label at the time. I remember, this is a long story, but you were the one who asked for him Yeah, I it So uh, we fly to L.A. I think we've already signed our deal. Flat to L.A., and we're going to meet with different... People at the label and talk about the album cover and different things like that. And uh, we arrive at LAX and they're actually going to send a limo to pick us up and take us to MCA headquarters. But the limo is late and it's so late and we're so hungry that we actually ended up ordering a pizza and having (laughs) it delivered while we were still waiting, you know, at LAX. So we get there and we're having a great time, and we we have two A and R representatives that are kind of both working with us. And so we get to her office, one of their offices, and we tell her the story, and she says, uh, "Well, I hope it wasn't Domino's that delivered the pizza." And I was like, well, "What? You don't like their crust?" And she says, uh, <laughs> "She says no, they're you know they're those they're those Nazis that support the you know pro life movement." Oh no. And so and so, as soon as she said that, like, you know, I, my recollection is some of my bandmates were just thinking, oh, you know, come on, Steve, don't, don't go there. <laughs> and I was like, you know, my mom was part of the pro-life movement. So I said, uh, I'm sorry, what? She said, you know, all those pro-life Nazis, are all the same. I said, well, uh, Teresa, you know, uh, number one— no, they're not Nazis. Number two, I've got a little bit of a connection with this. So, you know, and we ended up getting in this, like this really big argument, right there, like kind of our first official act as a band. And it keeps going. Like, we ended up going to, you know, we're going to the next meeting. We're still arguing in the hallway. Finally we get to the next meeting, and, you know, the other A&R guy says, hey, could we call a little truce just here so we can talk about an album cover? <laughs> so afterwards, the other A&R guy says, hey, Steve, so if you know, you're doing like a radio interview and somebody asks you about your views about abortion. Like, what are you gonna tell him? I said, Well, I'll probably just tell him what I believe. Don't you think that's a good idea? <laughs> and he clearly did not think that was a good idea. And so and it was it was like, you know, at that point, like the veil just lifts. And I said it's like Oh, I get it. So I was on this Christian record label, and I've got this, you know, one set of beliefs that I'm supposed to follow. Now I'm here on this alternative label. You know, they're they're going to push it at alternative radio, and now I'm supposed to follow another set of beliefs. It's like I just traded one straitjacket for another straitjacket. Yeah, funny, yeah. yeah. and so, I mean, it was a, it was a good experience, and you know, unfortunately, we never got popular enough to have those conversations <laughs> or arguments. But uh, it was it was very uh, revealing. And that was partly what informed starting Squint is that how do we make a label that there's so much great talent within kind of this Christian music, if you treat it as a farm team, there are bands that need to be heard Mm -hmm. by the rest of the world, but what would that label look like and how would it support artists differently? And uh, so that was really the impetus behind ultimately starting the record label. But you know, I mean, the experience with Chagall was a great experience, and we we made a record we're still really happy with. But ultimately, it was there was so much tension, even in, you know, we we went through a, a massive argument within the band whether to play Cornerstone or not, and we ultimately ended up playing it. But I mean, you know, like there was there was blood on the tracks over that one, yeah. and we just we just there was so much tension over over that question, and part of it was because there was no path that had already been trod before. We couldn't say, oh, well, let's do it the way this band did it. There just wasn't any other situation we could look at and follow. You know, it could maybe argue, well, you too had done it on some level, but it it wasn't a great analogy. And so we just kind of were on our own and making it up as we went.
0: Yeah. It's like once that subculture was established, it seems like it was probably really hard for Christians to sort of go anywhere but there for a long, long time. Right, right.
1: And I was thinking today for some reason, you know, the Sixpence album was
0: a really fine album. That's so good.
1: But man, I mean, there were, there were elements of the press that was like, they might as well have have been like, you know, the castles or something. Like they were just not going to treat them as anything else than that Christian band, right? Didn't matter what the album sounded like, yeah. didn't, didn't matter how successful they got, they would always be pigeonholed as that Christian band. And, you know, that was a problem with Chevelle too. We had this great band album produced by Albini and... There were people that were fair-minded, and there were others that were just like, ah, not if they got that history, no yeah. way, you know. And they would kind of go out of their way to not only diss them, but to like do it in kind of kind of cruel ways that had nothing to do with their music.
0: I remember when the Sixpence Record came out. I was like a kid in the youth group and surrounded by Christian music all the time, and and I had but like most of my friends were not Christians, and most of my friends, and I listened. Most of the music I listened to wasn't Christian music. It was rare that a record would come along that I'd be like, oh, I love this. And it was like The Prayer Chain and three or four other bands right, really sure. really caught my attention. And that record came out, and it was, it was funny because as soon as it came out, it captured my imagination. Like, the lyric that I always remember the first time I heard it kind of took my breath away is when she sings, uh, this is my 45th depressing tune. They're looking for money as they clean my artistic womb, right. which is like, right. takes your breath away. <laughs> And then Kiss Me came out as the single, which is like the one joyful, you know, pop song on the whole record. And so all of a sudden everybody's talking about this Sixpence record. And I'm like, but have you actually listened to what they're they're doing? Part of what struck me about the album and, and what strikes me about a lot of the projects that you've done is they defy categorization you know, when you're in the Christian world, you're pushing against these sort of norms of being saccharine and joyful. When you're in the secular marketplace, you're you're pushing against those norms. Is that like an intentional thing or is that just sort of like you've listened to The Clash and now you're just, you've got the punk rock thing imbibed and it's, you know what I mean? Like Yeah, yeah. There is a uh, treatise that
1: maybe it's already been written. The inner monologue that goes on your head when you grow up with kind of that punk rock ethic. And I say say grow up, like, you know, it hit me in college. Mm -hmm. But part of it is anytime you do something that whiffs of success, like you must be doing something wrong, right? (laughs) That's a really hard thing to escape, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: But I remember when we were doing the Sixpence album, they were depressed. Like they were right on the edge of breaking up. And they'd been on an indie label. The label went bankrupt, They'd come to me about producing their album right before the label went bankrupt. And so I ended up like paying for the album on a credit card. At the same time, I'm, I'm fighting this new evil empire in Chicago that's trying to take over their record deal. And, you know, it was, it was just crazy. And the odds were so stacked against us. They were just you know, in a bad place. The, the 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 thing that saved them is we just started making music again, because they were ready to break up as a band. And so it, it was, you know, a lot of depressing songs came out of that. <laughs> but we started playing uh, Kiss Me in the studio. And I remember like Matt, the main songwriter is in the control room with me and Lee is in the vocal booth, Dale, the drummer and JJ, the bass player are in the studio. And we're we're like getting the groove together. And I'm like, oh, this feels good, right? And it didn't start that way. Like the, this original song was, demo was almost like a dirge. So I'm turning around thinking, yeah, and I to that, that song I'm a like, dir- you yeah. know, hey, right? And he's like, I'm not feeling this, right? <laughs> you know, I tried not to push too hard in those situations, but I really pushed him' And I said, man, I think this is something we need to do. And, you know, thankfully he uh, assented. Yeah. And, uh, and But it was, uh, that album needed that song.
0: Yeah, no, he's probably still thankful to this day. <laughs> So after Chagall Guevara, you go back to being a solo artist, go back to the Christian world. Like, was that, an inten- again, kind of an intentional, like, okay?
1: Yeah, you know what did it was um, as relatively unsuccessful as we'd been on MCA, they really wanted another album. We were more successful than all their other <laughs> rock bands. And so um, so they want us to do another album, and we're like, anything but another album for you guys. Like, So we're trying to get off the label. And at the same time, you know, we've been kind of at each other about, how undercover we should be about our faith. And there was like, it was just like a, you know, a lot of tension. A friend of mine in town at a Christian label sent me this demo of this band called Newsboys. And the song was called I'm Not Ashamed. And then the chorus was uh, I'm Not Ashamed to Speak the Name of Jesus Christ, right? And the song definitely needed a lot of help. They He was sending it to me to see if I would want to, you know, rewrite the lyrics, which I agreed they needed work. But I loved this this notion so much that I got with the the leader of the band, Peter, and said, man, here's the new lyrics. What do you think? And he really liked them. And I said, why don't you let me produce this for you? And, you know, let's just see what happens. And so we went to the studio and produced that track. And the label liked it so much, they ended up producing the album. But it was a good experience. You know, they were Australians, so that kind of helped, too. I'd always gotten on with Australians <laughs> for whatever reason, <laughs> because they have such a chip on their shoulder. I don't know. But, um uh it was a great experience, and and reminded me of what I liked about Christian music. And then I had an opportunity to do another album, and the experience that I would had coming out of Chicago, Vara was was musically very satisfying. And so that was what the Squint album came from. And that's that's an album that, like, for the first time, finished that album. Every album before at the time seemed good, but that album, Squint, I can still listen to and think, oh yeah, I think that, I think this is pretty good. Once upon a name, an average boy was born for the second time. Grown upon the altar there, he whispered up the prayer he'd kept hid inside. Vision came, he saw the odds a hundred little gods on a gilded wheel. These will buy to take your place, but Father, by your grace, I will ended up being a great experience. And and then the the kicker was the label gave me like 75,000 bucks to make a long form video. And they were like, we don't care what you do just as long as we can sell it. Right. And so I took the money and we bought four around the world tickets at Delta Airlines at the time, as long as you kept going the same direction, you could go anywhere they flew in the world. Uh, we bought an old 35 millimeter film camera. My sound man came along to do sound. And a friend of mine who is a still photography, uh, photographer, Ben Pearson, he learned right before we left how to work the, the camera. <laughs> and one other guy was like a road manager. And we shot all these videos in like these really exotic locations around the world. And it was one of those projects where everything should have gone wrong. And like God smiled on us and everything went right. And it turned out to be a really good project. And we're the first American film crew to shoot in North Vietnam since they paraded POWs down the streets. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in like Nepal and uh, all these exotic locations. And it was just a blast. So that was probably more than anything the experience that really made me want to get into filmmaking Mm -hmm. seriously.
0: It's interesting. Like, I want to pull back for a minute and just talk about the impulse to be an artist, the impulse to make these things and send them out the to the world, like, how would you describe that for yourself? What is it about you that made, that in the first place made you go, because it takes a certain audacity to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to play music or I'm going to, like that, like, right. here's all this money, go make a film. And right. you're just, you, you, okay, let's go around the world. Like, let's bootstrap it and make it this way. Where does that audacity come from for well, you? Let's go back to John Davidson and uh, yeah. back where we
1: started. <laughs> back to lounge singing. Back to lounge singing. Because one of the things he said like, really stuck with me in one of our late night sessions. He said, when you're on stage, he said, try to latch on to those places in you that are kind of childlike and, and vulnerable. And he said, and don't think you don't have them, because if you were a totally well-rounded individual, you wouldn't feel the need to get on stage in the first place. <laughs> and,
0: uh, That's like Richard Pryor's quote, you know, happy, well-adjusted people don't get into this business. Yes, right, yeah.
1: right, right. And I, that part's a mystery to me, because I actually had a great childhood and have a great family, mm-hmm. and I don't know where that thing is that makes me want to, like, make something and show it to people, mm-hmm. but it's just it's just there it's you know probably always been there and it's it's probably not really a good thing and i don't you even mean that, know, like yeah, sincerely it's not I a good do, thing i do i do in that being a recording artist in particular maybe less so with a filmmaker and that's that's probably one of the reasons i got into producing and ultimately into filmmaking is but being a recording artist where you wake up every day and you're thinking what am i going to do to get people to work for me and to like me and, to, you know, like it's all about this self-promotion and it's part of the job and you can't not do it, but it doesn't square well with our Christian faith. That's just a tricky one, right? Yeah. And I still don't have an answer to it after all these years outside of... uh it's a good thing to know that it's not a good thing, <laughs> <laughs> and yet to
0: still pursue it, like to still yeah. I mean, policy. you know, I
1: think I think making stuff is yeah. is good. It's a you know we need it. It's a yeah. high calling, and we need more followers of Jesus to be doing it as well. Yeah. But if you go into it thinking that it doesn't have its downside and dark side and yeah. gravitational
0: pull, you will get sucked under. Or to think that it's going to satisfy. Something Absolutely. Deep in you. Yeah, we had this, yeah. I've had this
1: conversation actually with a, 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 an actor friend, and you know, one day was just complaining. I just if I could just get like a, like a, we've been successful, right? But just like, just get this one, like a, like a hit movie, like that would be it. I'd be fine. And I said, no, you won't be fine. <laughs> you will never be satisfied. Like, it will never be enough. You always feel like you got ripped off or you never got the credit you deserve, right? It will never be enough. And it's almost like, we should go into... There should be some kind of school training where you have to go for six months where you have to write all this down, you have to sign it on a piece of paper. <laughs> so that to keep going back to it and realizing that, you know, you're never going to be satisfied.
2: There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on it seems to hustle leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings... He goes and what it means it's hard to know
0: thanks for listening Steve will be back next week to talk about making a movie with Michael W. Smith making records with Steve Albini the long journey to making blue light jazz and his return to music after a 20 year hiatus We've got two big announcements this week. First, Harbor Media is launching a new podcast on September the 6th. It's called Steadfast and it's hosted by Sandra McCracken. Stay tuned after the credits and you can hear a preview of the show or you can go ahead and subscribe today in your favorite podcast app. Second, we'll be launching our membership program in September. This means that you can pay five bucks a month and get access to behind the scenes info, unedited interviews, early releases, and a whole lot more. And you'll get the joy of knowing that you helped make this show happen. Also, if you pay for a year in advance, just 60 bucks, you'll get a free t-shirt. Our show today was produced by me. It was edited by TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Today's music was by Steve Taylor. Special thanks to Dan Darling and Jason Thacker. All right. Stay tuned for the preview, and we'll see you next week. Harbor Media, this is Mike Cosper, and today we're excited to announce that this fall we're launching a new podcast called Steadfast with Sandra McCracken. Uh, Sandra's going to be the host of this show, and she's here with me today to talk a little bit about what's coming.
3: Hey, Mike.
0: Hey, Sandra. We're really excited to collaborate with you on this. I know it's part of a larger picture. You've got a live album coming and a film that's been made. Um, I'd love for you to talk about how this podcast fits into the larger project of what you're doing this fall.
3: Man, thanks. I... We'll start by saying I never really imagined or had ambition around a podcast or doing something and this spoke of the creative wheel. But what I've realized is that there is something about music and making music and writing songs for me that is so fundamentally relational. When we made this album, this, this steadfast live album, it is um, the culmination of Some months spent um, in prayer and imagining like, what is a service, like what is an evening performance look like when you weave together song and scripture, contemplative prayer and relationship, you know, the dynamic of people in a room. So this podcast idea comes out of this, it comes out of the live performance vision and it comes into this space of bringing us into relationship with each other and getting curious about, about how somebody else sees the world. So it's been a real privilege to have some conversations and to begin having these informal interviews, because I am so thankful to see evidence of God's steadfast love in people's lives. And we may not have the same story or the same coordinates or the same kind of loss, but we have the same thread that God meets us and He walks with us, and we ask the same questions, and we, we suffer fundamentally the same way. I think by recognizing that and acknowledging that, there's comfort in knowing we are not alone. When we hear other people suffering, we have a context for our own. And I think that's a place that God moves in close.
0: Who are some of the folks that you're having these conversations with?
3: Um, In these first few months, I've spoken with Steve Garber, who has written some beautiful books on faithfulness and vocation with Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, and his wife, Deanna. He's a philosopher and a professor at Calvin. Um, he wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. I had a conversation with Liz Vice, and uh, she's a musician and just a tremendous human that has taught me so much about depth and soulfulness and the ability to say yes to Whatever might come up. And um, let's see, who else? I spoke with Peter Harris, who's the founder of Arasha International, which is a a Christian conservation group. Um, Peter is sort of a poet and pastor of ecology and one of the most articulate winsome speakers about what it is to hope and to extend ourselves for the care of creation. Um, And I also spoke with Kevin Finch, who is the um, nephew of Eugene Peterson and in a long line of pastors has found his pastoral call in the restaurant business where he ministers to and cares for um, folks that are in the food industry, which is one of the most unseen places in, in largest industries and most unseen in our, in our country. So um, a very, like a wide variation of um, personalities and topics.
0: One of the things we've talked about in wanting to tell stories of how God's been present and comforted us, um, we want people to participate. So we're going to be soliciting stories from your audience. How can people keep an eye out for those opportunities?
3: Um, yeah, we will post on Facebook and on Twitter, Instagram. Um, I I frequent Instagram and then we'll send it through the other channels. So I would say... Um, Keep an eye out there and my website as well, sandramcracken.com. And we will kind of keep asking questions. I think Facebook will probably be the primary place that we'll ask those questions and ask for submissions. And hopefully this is a magnetic kind of a, a process where we learn to ask each other these questions so that it happens here, but then it would ripple out and encourage that kind of sacred questioning in our lives special thank you to um, the pledge campaign participants. Thanks for joining in the pre-sale and early support around the steadfast live project. We are offering some of the podcast conversations early for you and are really just excited to bring you into this story and excited to see where it takes us.
0: So the official release date is September the 6th. You can go on right now, Market calendars. You can also go on to iTunes, Stitcher, any of those places where you normally get podcasts. You'll find Steadfast with Sandra McCracken, and you can go ahead and subscribe. Hey, Sandra, this is a great project. I've had the chance to listen to a couple of these interviews already, and I'm excited to share them with the world. So thanks for doing this, and thanks for letting us be a part of it.
3: Thank you, Mike.